welcome to A Dog Called Diversity, a podcast from the Culture Ministry, where we explore the themes of diversity, equity and inclusion through sharing stories of personal and powerful lived experiences, including how people have found their feet and developed their career in diversity and inclusion. We are so glad you're listening in. And if you need some help or support with your diversity and inclusion work, you can email Lisa at lisa.mulligan at thecultureministry.com or go to www.thecultureministry.com for more information. A lawyer at Bloomberg for over 10 years, Amin Kassam is the epitome of intersectionality. Being ethnically Indian, his mother is from Uganda and his father from Tanzania. He is also Muslim and gay. Two closets to come out of. Amin speaks about the challenges growing up where he never felt he belonged anywhere and how hard it was to reconcile all aspects of his identity without visible role models. He also thinks closet is a terrible metaphor for coming out. He likes the analogy of a curtain that is slowly unveiled. Amin talks about the obligation for companies to create a safe space for LGBTIQ people, particularly in Asia. This is because people in the West often come out to their family and friends first and may cover in the workplace to avoid discrimination. In the East, where Amin lives and works, it can often be the opposite. People often feel more comfortable to be out in their workplaces, but not with their families, who they often still live with. Amin Kassam is a great example of how we can all make a difference and contribute to our organizations. Here's your host, Lisa Mulligan. Well, welcome to the podcast, Amin. It is such a delight to have you joining me from New York. I'm very jealous. <laughs> you work for Bloomberg, but you know, tell me a bit about what you do there at Bloomberg. Sure. Uh, so I'm a lawyer by training and I am uh, been a lawyer for over 20 years. I've uh, been at Bloomberg for 10. Uh, I was in New York for most of that time. Um, but about two and a half years ago, I was sent to Hong Kong to lead our legal department in Asia. So at Bloomberg, we have um, employees in 17 different jurisdictions. We covered 26 markets. And uh, my job is to sort of deal with all the myriad legal issues that come up there across uh, across the region. Asia, yeah. And when we um, when we first connected, you were in Hong Kong, and I, and I guess you're going back back soon. Yeah, yeah, in a few case? weeks. Yeah, I'm just here for <laughs> a work trip. Yeah, so I managed to come back to New York for a little bit, first time since the pandemic. So, oh, amazing, amazing. Well, it's great to have you here. Um, and I'm I'm talking to you from Auckland, so the almost the other end of the world today. But I'd love if if you could start and. Tell us a little bit about your growing up, um, maybe where you grew up and, and, you know, how you grew up. I think that would be really interesting to learn about. Sure. Uh, and thanks for having me on the podcast. It's, uh, it's wonderful no to problem. be here. Um, so uh, I grew up, so I was born and raised in Vancouver, Canada, um, but my parents are actually from East Africa. So my mother is from Uganda. My father is from Tanzania. Uh, they met there, they married there, they had my sister there. Um, my father actually only has a grade 10 education. Uh, my mother was a teacher, um, grew up quite poor. Um, and they immigrated to Canada uh, in, the 19, in 1970. 
two, uh, just a few years before I was born. Um, and uh, my grandparents are were from India. So I'm actually Indian ethnically. So my grandparents moved from India to East Africa, where they had my parents. Uh, and I'm Muslim as well. And I also identify as a member of the LGBT community. So there's a lot going on there. <laughs> there's a lot going on there. Yes. <laughs> I think um, it's the definition of intersectionality that, you know, there's multiple um, identities and experiences that you have. Tell me what that meant to you growing up. And I guess as you came into your adult years, how did some yeah. of these things play out? Like how does being Muslim play out and being gay? Tell me a bit about that. Yeah. So it was, a, you know, it was a real challenge growing up because I never felt and if you talk to others in who are sort of intersectional in these different ways uh, I never felt it belonged anywhere right I never quite felt quite comfortable in the different worlds where I interact and I could never find a way to reconcile all the different aspects of my identity and I couldn't you know it was a real it was really a challenge and I think for me also growing up and as I started my career I didn't see a lot of role models of leaders who look like me, right? Even if people were coming out of the closet, you know, as I was coming in law school, they weren't necessarily Muslim or Indian, for example. And so I just always sort of felt a little bit off balance, I think, for quite some time. Um, and and that, that posed its own set of challenges. I think what I've learned over the years, and I was fortunate, I learned about intersectionality in law school from Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, who actually coined mm. the term. Uh, and what I learned uh, over time is that it wasn't that I didn't belong anywhere, but actually I belonged everywhere. And that I think now in this role and you know, much older and wiser, I guess, I'm able to draw on all the different experiences of who makes me who I am to be a better uh, leader and lawyer, you know, advocate um, and friend and, and person. So I think that for me was sort of part of that journey, but it, but it was a challenge for quite some time. Yeah. Even being, um, I guess, an expat in some ways, you don't know where you belong. So you, you said you, you were born in Canada and I guess you grew up there. You spent a lot of time in New York. You now live in Hong Kong. Um, I think in some ways expats have that same feeling. It's like, I don't belong anywhere. I don't know what my home is anymore and I don't know who to connect with. I'd like to explore a little bit more about growing up Muslim and because as a religion, I mean, many religions are problematic mm. um, and I'm not saying Muslim is, but um, there's a perception about the Muslim um, religion um, that is perhaps more difficult to be in the world as a Muslim than perhaps being a Christian at the current time, which is incredibly unfortunate. But how does being gay fit within the Muslim faith um, and, and what you know of it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. I um... So for me, from a, a from a personal journey, um, you know, my family we went to services on a regular basis. Um, my community is relatively quite liberal, so I didn't grow up with people saying things at services that you know gay people uh, are less than or yeah. you know going to hell or none of that was ever part of the of, yeah. of my my faith or my, our practice or anything that I heard. So that was that was a start. You know, there was a point I remember in my in my twenties. I was listening to someone talk about Islam, and a scholar, and he talked about how Islam means uh, one of the ways it defined is submission to the will of God, and that is a very common theme you'll hear about the, what what Islam really means, submitting to the will of God. And as I was sitting there thinking, okay, 
So you submit to the will of God. Well, I'm pretty sure I know I was born this way. This is not something I, you know, had control over, right? I was, this was how God made me. Yeah. So if I'm supposed to submit to the will of God as a Muslim, then I must submit to the fact that I'm gay and I have to accept it and uh, acknowledge it and live it and be it. Now, that was in my 20s. I, and I think so that's how I reconciled it in, in my head from a theological yeah. standpoint. But yeah. it took a long time for me to eventually come out. And, you know, I would say the coming out process for me was it wasn't a closet. Like, I think it's a terrible metaphor, right? You know, everyone says the door opens and everybody knows you're gay, right? Yeah. Well, I say it was a curtain. You know, I slowly opened the curtain bit yeah. by bit, you know, and eventually over time, the curtain was fully open, but it took some time to get there. Right. And so, yeah. you know, the, la- the it was later on that I came out to members of my community and also to my parents. And so that was kind of the, the final piece of that. The, the, the other thing I would just say, and we talked about intersectionality when it comes to faith, it, it is interesting. I always given this example because intersectionality is about how you have all these different uh, identities and how they create new forms of marginalization and alienation, yeah. right? Even discrimination. Yeah. And, and so the example that I often give is, um, it was, I think, uh, I can't remember the, I think it was 2000 and it was June, I think 2016, I believe, or 2018. Um, it was the year where, um, you may remember there was uh, a shooting at a gay nightclub in Orlando called Pulse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, a number of, of our LGBT brothers and sisters were killed. And uh, at the time, I was uh, leading our LGBT employee resource group called Be Proud at Bloomberg. And I came to the office and it was very, very upset. The community was very upset. I spent the entire day working with the company leaders to like come up with our response. And, you know, and we were, you know, there was a, a, a uppouring of support, you know, uh, yeah. in many different ways. But, you know, the shooter was Muslim. And so after I spent the day working on how to support my LGBT community, I come home yeah. at night and uh, I look online and there's all these people, LGBT people um, saying things about the Muslim community and saying that the Muslim faith should be held responsible for the actions of one madman. And that for me was a good example of just how alone I felt at that moment. Right. Yeah. Uh, because I, I was kind of caught between these two worlds and to see you know, members of my own one community attacking another community on both sides. It was very, very challenging. And so uh, I still remember that day particularly. Yeah, I, I can imagine that would really, that would really stick in your mind. And that, that is such a personal attack when you're in your organization trying to do the best work you can do for your community and then to be attacked from a different side or from the same community you're trying to support is very very challenging i'd like to learn a little bit about um your move to asia and maybe how that changed your view of your identity and how you fit in um because you know asia is much more um diverse there's a lot of countries that make up asia there's a lot of religions there's uh, lots of places that are very conservative but also places that are, are starting to be more liberal so Tell me what it's like now being in Hong Kong as a, a gay Muslim Indian man. <laughs> it, it, is, it is very interesting. I think the thing that I learned when I was there, and it goes back to thinking about how the, my background, I feel like is actually um, a significant help, is mm-hmm. this notion of cultural competency. You know, mm-hmm. this, this very, 
it's becoming increasingly important as we become a more multicultural, multifaceted world. But this idea of how do you communicate and flex and adjust and engage with different cultures around the world uh, in a way that um, uh, is respectful, but allows you to actually move forward and come to some sort of agreement. In, in a place like where I work, where we have so many cultures and communities um, at Bloomberg, cultural companies becomes even more important because like yeah. in our office, for example, in Hong Kong, you know, only a third are actually people from Hong Kong. The rest are from pretty much every country you can imagine. It's an incredibly diverse group of 900 employees. Yeah. I think to be successful in that space, you have to have cultural competencies, right? I sit on the, the Diversity Inclusion Council and we've actually been rolling out trainings and trying to help our employees think about how do you be better at that? And I think for me, the number one thing I had to learn uh, when I arrived was a, a heavy dose of humility because I don't know a lot of the different ways of doing things and how do you interact. The way you solve a problem in Tokyo may be very different than the way you solve a problem in Sydney that may be different in Mumbai that may be very different in Beijing. Um, yeah. I think that for me was something I had to really learn and I'm still learning, you know, and even how I approach things, I've really learned how to flex. Um, and at the same time being true to who I am, right. Cause you kind of, you can't lose that as well. Right. So for me, that's been one of the big things. I think the second thing I would say is I live in a part of the world where LGBT rights are not what they are. Right. I mean, yes, you have gay yeah. marriage and fun, mm-hmm. but you don't have the same rights in a lot of parts of the world. And in fact, things are going backwards in places like in mainland China example yeah so for me it's even more important for me to stand up and be visible right to be visible as a leader because um you know in a place like singapore it's still illegal to be gay or it's illegal to engage in gay conduct for men yes (laughs) yes Um, so (laughs) you're a lawyer come on (laughs) that's that's yeah Uh, and so you know i i think it's really important to stand up and say you know what, um, I'm, I'm an openly gay Muslim and I am a leader and I support my teams. And, and when I do that, I give others a space to also be themselves and to be vulnerable and to be open. And I think that for me is really important. Yeah, really love that. And I think that piece around cultural competency is so important. And my experience moving to Asia and working in Asia is different to yours. Um, for me, it was, you know, I'm, I'm a white person, I'm a woman, I'm relatively privileged, I've, you know, got a good education, I was paid well when I, when I worked in Asia. Um, so for me, it was about an experience of being in the minority and, and what it's like to be in the minority. And of course, it's not the same as other minority groups, it's just not because I still have a lot of privilege, but, but to get an inkling of what it's like to be somewhere where you're different to everyone else was a great learning um, and really does connect into that cultural competence and, you know, and humility, I think, that you spoke about at the start. It's yeah. so funny you say that because I, I ethnically Indian, but because my family was from East Africa, I went to East Africa as a child because that's where my cousins and uncles and aunts were. So I never made right. it to India. <laughs> Until I moved to Hong Kong, which is about ah. two and a half. I moved to Hong Kong about uh, two and a half, almost three years now, actually. And I went to Mumbai for a work, uh, work trip before COVID. And it was the fr- I remember <laughs> sort of being out there. And it was the first time in my life I looked. I was, it just hit me that I was in the majority because I've never been in the majority. I've yes. never <laughs> seen everyone look like me. And it was such a, it was almost jarring. And I didn't realize 
that it would feel different, but it actually felt it was a, it had the taste of the opposite of what you yeah. described. Yeah, was it nice? Uh, well, it was just amazing because you know, growing up, my I you know we very much culturally Indian, right? So even though we go back two generations, my mother cooked Indian food and wore a sari, and my first language was Gujarati. I you know was not English, so when I was in Mumbai, it was almost like I would see all the things I ate as a child, right? So it was almost bringing me back to my childhood in many ways. Uh, and it was it was a really lovely experience, actually. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Really feel like you belong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Many ways, right? So yeah. I wanted to talk a bit about the role of corporates in mm. diversity and inclusion work, and and I guess um, social work and community work. And some of the research I've been looking at recently is um, looking at how you know, the trust that exists in organisations and corporations, multinationals, at the moment, the most trusted places um, that people, you know, pe- employees look to employers to to stand up against social issues that are happening in the world. They're expecting CEOs to have a, a view and a, and a point. Um, and we've seen that recently with um, the Ukraine crisis where employees want companies to take a stand and, and to act. And that organisations are more trusted than governments and NGOs and the media. Um, so I'd like to hear about, you know, your view on that and, and some of the work you're doing at Bloomberg. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're very fortunate. I work for a company founded by Mike Bloomberg, who has a very mm-hmm. specific view on things and a set of values that I ascribe to and makes these things a priority. So in some ways, it's a little bit easier because we know exactly where he stands on these things. But I do think that there's been a real shift in the last 10, 15, 20, 15 years, I would say, where particularly I would say that millennials and younger, younger workforce, people ending the workforce want to work for a company that stands for something and stands for their values. And there was a time many years ago where companies wouldn't say anything. They would say, they would just say, we're not going to take a stance. Yeah. But I think where we've now come to is saying nothing is actually saying something. And I think a lot of uh, employees are holding companies rightfully so accountable saying, we expect you to stand up and say something because that is saying, you know, to stand up for our, um, uh, for advocacy uh, across a number of different areas. And so for, I'm very fortunate. One of the things I get to do here is I work with a number of different individuals from our diverse inclusion team, our communications team, government relations to, to sign on to uh, briefs and statements on behalf of the company in support of LGBT rights and reproductive rights and immigrant rights and you know, racial equality and things of that nature, um, because we think this is really important. It's important. And I think to the point that you raise is that when corporations come together, there is power in that, right? Yeah. And we've seen it time and time again. And I think particularly in Asia, you know, some of these major financial centers like Singapore and Hong Kong, corporations have a, a pretty strong role to play in these yeah. places. That is the heart of what these places are built on. And so I think it's incumbent on corporations not to be scared uh, to, to stand up and, and make a statement uh, for what they believe in. And, and I'm really grateful to be able to work at a company that does that. Yeah, it's certainly one of the tensions um, that I've seen in the diversity and inclusion work I do where employees are saying, why are we operating in countries where, where the human rights 
um, I guess, agenda of the government is not in line with our values as a company. Um, and I've seen it a couple of times, for example, in Brunei, when Sharia law was implemented um, with very um, hideous punishments for, for being gay um, or where we're operating in in other countries that like Singapore where you can't get employment pass or dependent passes for same-sex partners, um, you know, things like that. And we, we're seeing employees go, well, why are we in these countries and why aren't we, why aren't we standing up to the governments? But on the other hand, the company is saying, well, we have to act within the laws of the countries we operate in. So how do you, how do you view those tensions? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's tr- these are tricky issues, right? Um, we as a company do have to operate in these, in these countries. And remember, we, we provide news and information and data to people around yeah. the world, including <laughs> on these issues. We report <laughs> on the issues, right? So if we're not there, how are we going to shine a light on these issues in the first place, right? So that's the first thing I would say. Mm-hmm. The second thing I would say is Singapore is a really good example of this because, and I found this also a change in Asia versus being, say, in New York or Vancouver is mm-hmm. a, a difference, is that because of maybe um, familial ties and some of the stigma around being LGBT in some of these places, mm-hmm. and often people stay are living at home with their families much longer than they may in the West, yeah. um, they will come out at work before they come out to their friends and families. And studies have shown that that's the case often in Asia versus in the West. It's the reverse, where people will come out to their friends before they come out into the world. What does that mean for us? That means we have even more of an obligation to create a space where people feel comfortable that they can be themselves, right? And I think by doing that, you are having an impact on that society. We do a lot of work, and despite the law, we do a lot of work in our Singapore office. We have a thriving, thriving LGBT community there and everyone and a, and a strong allyship that comes with that as well, right? And so I think we are able to make an impact in that way and we're able to support uh, our employees in a way that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I love that. Singapore is so fascinating. Um, I've spent most of my time in Singapore, so nearly eight years. And, you know, I feel like everything in Singapore is on one end of of a spectrum. Um, And I think LGBT rights are the same. So we have some very strict laws that have been um, challenged in court over the last few years to try and get the, the legislation repealed that um, against men having sex um, but on the other hand the government doesn't enforce it and they are openly saying we don't enforce it but we're not going to change it and it's a really fascinating <laughs> society to operate in. And I would, I would to that point I would argue and I may be wrong but I would argue that the government is is not enforcing that law because they know and they've heard from corporations that this is problematic because it means we can't bring in our top talent and not yeah. just top LGBT talent. It means that people look at that as a signal across the board for diversity inclusion. So if you're diverse in any way, the signal is you you know you may not want to go to Singapore, right? And we've had yeah. people ask to be relocated to other places because of that. So I think. The, 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 the fact that the corporations have spoken out about this for many years may have led to the government saying we're not going to enforce this. Yes. And, and it's so interesting. I think Singapore is probably one of the safest places in Asia for gay people, um, despite all of that going on. What do you want to see change next? Like what are, what's your vision for the future? I know you're a great advocate um, for the LGBT community. So like, where do you see all this heading? 
Well, first, I would love to see us in a place where we have sort of equal rights for the LGBT community around the world and recognize, mm-hmm. right? I think we have a long ways to go. Um, we've seen some progress in places like India, for example, right? They removed the anti-sodomy law, so that was great. We have gay marriage in Taiwan. Yeah. The hope was that that might lead to more because people could see how that, you know, Society has not fallen apart in Taiwan. It's actually no, thriving, no. right? Exactly. So, so like sort of having examples in Asia. Yeah. So number one, Tokyo uh, had a recent change. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, while we've seen some steps backwards for like the mainland, we've seen some steps forward as well. Even in Hong Kong, uh, there have been a number of legal challenges to various laws that discriminate against LGBT community. And those cases have uh, turned out to be positive for the community in the sense of that slow incremental changes to increase the lo- the rights, for example, of spouses getting visas, right? Uh, if you're married, yeah. if you're an LGBT person married overseas, you can get a, a spousal visa. That was not the case before. So we are seeing a little bit of that. Um, and I think I would love to see, so that number one, just from a human rights perspective. Yeah. Number two, I would like us to think more about intersectionality. And, you know, so often we think about programs, you know, in, in, in a, or initiatives in, in these siloed sort of categories. And we don't think about, the intersectionality of that, right? Like I think about like domestic workers in Hong Kong, right? Yeah. They are particularly vulnerable. Why? Because it's the intersectionality of their race and their gender and their national origin. And in some cases, this might be even religion, right? So mm. they, there is a, there's vulnerabilities that come from that. And so when you're thinking about how do you address, you know, the challenges that a particular community faces, you need to think about all of that and you need to get an intersectional approach to things. And the last thing I love to see is just, you know, my, um, I've often said in the corporation space is that diversity inclusion isn't a set of policies and guidelines and initiatives and trainings. It's really a way of life. It's the way, it's the lens with which you look at everything. And that takes time to develop. But that's what I want people to see is that every decision you make has to, has to be um, with that lens, um, you know, and I think that's, that's something that's going to take some time to, to develop. So, Yeah. I want to touch on two of those things that you talked about. Yeah. So firstly, uh, that we have to start taking an intersectional lens and of course we do. And, and I think the way to do that is through inclusion. So how do we build inclusion for everyone? But that is sometimes at odds with what large businesses are trying to achieve. And, you know, I have always argued when people say, oh, well, I don't think we should have quotas, say, for women or we shouldn't have, we shouldn't have targets or, you know, for women or, or, or whatever we're trying to achieve. Yeah. And I've always argued, well, of course we should because in business we measure everything. We have targets for everything. Why shouldn't we have for something as important as diversity? But when you're thinking about intersectionality, you can't have targets for, you know, uh, gay Muslims or uh, women who with a disability, like, you know, it just, it just doesn't work, right? So I think, you know, that's been one of the challenges with this work in corporations that we want to have targets, we want to be able to measure it, but how do we get the intersectional lens? And my view is it's through inclusion and we have to work out how to, to build that. And I really liked what you said about you know, we need to look at this work through the lens of inclusion um, and culture. And all of my career, I've worked in very industrial male-dominated businesses and very dangerous businesses. So 20 years ago, I worked for a company where once a month, someone was killed at one of our sites around the world. Um, And it was terrible. And, but over the last 20 years, 
in that industry and other like industries, um, so like mining, construction, the the focus has been on how do we look at everything we do through a safety lens. But that's taken 20 years or longer to get there. And, you know, I've started to realise when I'm talking with other people working in this space and there's frustration and exhaustion because we can't make things happen quickly, I think we need to look at other industries where they're changing cultures in different ways and look at how they've done it, but also how long it took. I agree with that. And I think it takes time. I also think what we need to, to, to your point about that and the quotas is I don't think we've done a very good job, particularly in Asia, in no. <laughs> explaining the business case for diversity, right? We know the academic literature is very clear. Diverse teams come out with yeah. better outcomes. Now they may have more conflict as they get to that outcome, but they yeah. come out with yeah. the better outcomes, right? Because And so what I often say is, DNI is great because, for, yes, it's the right thing to do and all of that, but it's fundamental to our business. As a technology company, we mm-hmm. need that diversity uh, of, of experience and backgrounds and across the board because that helps to drive innovation, right? And that helps to drive disruption. And that ultimately leads to success in a mo- increasingly multinational world, right? You, we, have, we have customers in pretty much every country in the world. So, this is not just about doing something because it's you know nice to do. This is about our business and our future yep. uh, and being competitive. And I think we need to really drive that because when we start driving that message and people actually believe it, they're not going to, they don't, I mean, you, they don't need a quota. They're like, no, I got to do this to get, to get yeah. what I'm looking at is my revenue target. And it's not going <laughs> to, this is going to impact my bottom line. Right. And yeah. I just haven't done a good enough job of really driving home that message. Yeah, it's such a good point. I love that. Is there anything you'd like to finish with? I mean, it's oh, a good question. You know, I think I would just say from a personal standpoint for so long, uh, and people ask me, why do I so passionate about these issues, right? Mm. And it is the personal, right? Because for so long, I didn't believe in myself. I didn't have confidence in myself because I didn't see myself reflected. Right. And um, I actually hid, I hid, I think I talked about, uh, about once before with you about how I lived in these two closets. I hid the fact, the closet of being Muslim and the closet of being gay. I didn't want people to know these things about, you know, I constantly kind of hid them and it took some time for me to start coming out of those closets and being open about who I am and what I stand yeah. for and what I believe in. And for me, what motivates me is that I do that in part because I want other young Indian, gay, Muslim, whatever, non-gender binary, <laughs> whatever you are, to yeah. see that and say, okay, you can be all those things and you don't have to hide who you are and you can really make an impact uh, uh, in, in your workplace and outside. And so for me, that's the driver in all of this. I, I really want that for other young kids that may be looking for that. Um, I think for me, that's, that's really what matters. Yeah. Do you find the more, the more that you are you, the braver you are, the more courageous you are, the more you speak out, the better it gets, that Absolutely. people connect with you more? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, we talk about leadership, right? And, um, you know, one of the attributes we think about is um, authenticity right? And to be authentic, right? People say we want leaders who are authentic. People really respond to authentic leaders, which I believe, right? To be authentic means to be vulnerable. 
And so for me to, when you come out as whatever, whether you're disabled, you come out as a, or, or, or gay or Muslim or whatever, mm-hmm. um, when you come out of whatever closet you are in, you are choosing to be vulnerable and you're yep. choosing authenticity. And by choosing authenticity, you are becoming a better leader. And for me, the more I've leaned into that, the better I have found my career, to be honest, as well, yeah. and, and the ability to lead. So that, for me, is something I've found uh, and, and very grateful for. Thank you so much. It's been such a delight to speak with you. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Seriously, yeah. Thank you. And I just know people will have learned so much um, about what you've spoken about. I, I, you know, I think the two closets, I think that's a really great way to think of intersectionality. You know, I think the role of corporates and organisations in this space um, was so interesting too. So thank you so much. Great. So that was that a We hope you learned a lot from Amin. Our key takeaways at the Culture Ministry, how important it is to understand and develop cultural competencies to create inclusion in organisations how we need diversity to bring diversity of thought to build innovation, the importance of addressing intersectionality in our diversity and inclusion work, the importance of believing in yourself and how the more confident you are to be yourself, the more authentic you are, and this leads to better outcomes. At the Culture Ministry, we know how challenging and lonely it can be working in diversity and inclusion. And as we have learnt from Amin, progress in organisations is often slow. You might be just getting started in diversity and inclusion, or you might be on your way. The Culture Ministry is here to help you with your diversity and inclusion progress. Go to www.thecultureministry.com to learn more. If you enjoyed this episode and maybe learnt something, please share with your friends on social media. Give a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment. This makes it easier for others to find A Dog Called Diversity.